we're looking for a volunteer. Would you jump in the pit? I mean, would you? I, I don't think any, maybe somebody here would. Most, most people that are not insane would, wouldn't. So if you would, we might need to talk about some, some help for you a little bit later, some mental wellness help. You also, though, in your own circle, you know, that little, what I'd call the octagon of death there that had all the snakes in it, in your own circle of life, of the people in your life, if you had a ton of people in your life, they're what we call snakes. What our teenagers help us define, a snake is somebody that you thought was on your team, you thought had your best interest at heart, you thought was a friend, but they end up betraying you, turning their back on you, doing something that puts you uh, at risk or at deficit. If you had a circle of friends that were full of snakes, as in people snakes, your life would be pretty miserable. And that's why we've talked about the series because we've all had at least one person. Hopefully you don't have a ton. You had people in your life that hurt you, that betrayed you. And so we've been talking over the last four weeks about what, how do we live with that? What does the scripture say? And if you go back to the very first week, and if you want to catch up, maybe this is a hot button issue for you in your life. You've got some people you're dealing with right now. So you go, yes, when you said somebody that was on my team that turned their back on me, that, somebody came to my mind, but you haven't been here. You can go grab those stuff, iTunes and pull them down and listen. They might be helpful messages for you. That first week, we talked about loving our enemies. That's what Scripture says. Loving that snake in our life. And so we challenge you to pass out little yellow sticky notes and challenge you to write somebody's name or their initials down and said, hey, we're going to pray for that person for the next four weeks, so this month. So you should be coming up now, starting four weeks about of praying for a person that's been an enemy in your life. Now, here's what, I, here's what I believe, and I'd love to hear some stories. I believe, because I've seen it happen time and time again, and because the scripture is clear, that over the past four weeks, if you've prayed diligently for that person, I would almost bet that God has begun to shape and change your heart towards that person. And if he hasn't yet, then that's a sign that you need to keep on after it. We say, hey, we got to love our enemies. We've got to pray for those who persecute you. Then we came back in the second week, and we talked about vengeance. Because that's when, when somebody hurts us, we want to turn around and get them back. we got a justice nature in us. It comes from the Spirit of God. We, we get that. But we can't. And we said that, hey, when you practice revenge or you have to revenge, you're, you're actually rewriting the story that God had for you. And so we walked out of that week and kind of amped up our expectations and our discipleship. Because we said, hey, we're going to keep praying for that person. We've gotten on our yellow sheet, but now we read scripture and we understood that we also are called to bless that person, to speak well of them. The person who's spoken bad of you, that we're going to speak well of them. And we even put out the challenge because we're just following scripture. It wasn't our idea, it was God's, to go during the next couple of weeks and do something that ministers to the person who's your enemy. And so all of a sudden, we went from like this series on snakes to going, if we're going to get serious about discipleship, We've got some very difficult things in line for us to walk towards. Loving and praying for our enemy, blessing them, doing something to minister to them. And then during here, we had a week off for Easter. But on Wednesday, David Stippick talked to our teenagers, and he gave a great message about what we call snakes in the den. How do we live and what do we do with people who have hurt us? And he walked us through Jesus' teaching on how we get reconciliation and how we confront people uh, that have hurt us that we have to go to them. We don't go to somebody else. We don't talk about it on Facebook or social media. We go to them and confront them and say, hey, we have a problem. We have dissonance or a disconnect in our relationship, and I'm hurting because of this, or I might have hurt you, and I want to come to you, and I want to 
reconcile this relationship. And he walked us through the steps that, that Jesus led his disciples through and, and left recorded for us so that we could learn that. It's important because we don't want to live in a world like that. Let me ask you this. We talk about snakes, like, like these kind of snakes, not plush ones, real snakes. Why, why are we afraid of snakes? Right? I'm afraid, that's a dumb question, right? Because they bite you now. You might go because they, they look creepy. Sure, they slither. It's kind of weird. But at the end of the day, it's because they bite. If I had a snake that was literally this big in here, and it could not, I mean, you knew by its nature, God had created it, that it didn't bite. You wouldn't be afraid of it. I mean, you might be kind of weirded out by it, like I said, because it, but you know what it would be? It would be a three-foot earthworm is all it would be. And you, you've never walked out of your garage after a big rain and saw an earthworm in your driveway and grabbed the kids and held them back, right? You know, don't go near it. Walk around it. You might, you, you, you just ignore it, or you might pick it up and throw it into the garden. Now, it would, I, I, granted, it'd be weird if you walked down and there's a three-foot earthworm, but you, you would just pick it up with two hands and throw it in the garden, you know? Or, but you wouldn't be a, afraid of it. We don't want to get bit. Who's, have you ever been, anybody here ever been bit by a snake? Yeah, I have. When I was in college, I had a really, I, I would say a phobia of snakes. And my roommate named Chris came home one day, we were living in an apartment, he came home with an aquarium that had a ball python in it. And I, I remember like we were standing outside, we hadn't even been into the house yet, he's holding it. And I'm like, what is, what is that? And like, why is it here? And he goes, I bought it. I'm like, well, you need to unbuy it. You need to get rid of it. He's like, no, it's so awesome. <clears throat> and so over the course of about a week, I started trying to get over this fear. And I, and, you know, I'd touch it while he held it. And then, then, then I held it. Well, by the end of the week, it's a pretty quick thing. I was totally comfortable with the snake. I mean, we'd sit in the living room and watch TV. It'd crawl on us, things like that, weird to other people. Out. I, I'd gone from afraid to like, no big deal. And then, like, like, when you have a snake, they feed about once a week. So the size he, he was. Not a, big, not, not a big snake. And it was probably, you know, it's probably deemed inhumane now. Um, but we fed him live mice because that's the way God made him to eat. And so the guy that sold us the snake told us, he said, hey, when you feed him next week, you know, a week from today, you don't want to feed him in your aquarium, in his aquarium, because you don't want him to associate eating with where he lives. So you want to pull him out, put him in a cardboard box, feed him. So it comes that day to feed and by now, all of our friends know we have a snake. We're the only people in college that have a snake. You know, we're like now legends. And so it's feeding day, and we've got about 15 people that have come to watch the event. And so we get the, we get the snake out. We, we put him in the, the box, cardboard box. We get the little mouse, and we put the little mouse in the cardboard box. And it was, it was like an experience of creation. Because this mouse had like been bred at like a mouse farm for pets. But when the mouse got inside the box and immediately saw the snake that it had never seen before, he'd never seen a snake in its life, and immediately ran to the corner and peed. Like, I said, that's what I would have wanted to do too. Like, and I know what I'm getting into. It didn't. It's just like by nature knew. But the snake, the ball python, sits coiled up and just sits there perfectly still in a ball. And the, it's a whole other illustration on temptation, how the enemy works too. But the, that mouse finally gets comfortable and starts moving around and walking around, actually goes up you know, to the snake, turns around, and, and like, in an instant, the snake strikes, 
coils it up and starts constricting. And when that snake struck, all 15 of us that were just like gathered around this box, like, why isn't it doing anything? Like, pretty much that mouse owns him. Like, you know, we're like, well, we don't understand. Like, verbally encourage him, eat, go for it. When he struck, all of us jumped back. Like, I mean, it was so fast, lightning quick. And we're like, oh my goodness. And we watched the way that God made this. It was just crazy how the snake eats. And it gets done. And you're watching like on TV, the, like, the, the mouse like go down the snake's body. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, God damn. I mean, we're sitting there. And then we're like looking at him. I look at Chris and I'm like, man, I guess you got to put him back in the aquarium. And Chris looked at me and goes, I am not reaching my hand in there. I said, it's your snake. We can't live in, he can't live in the cardboard box. There's no, you know. And he said, I, I don't want the snake anymore. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know what you want us to do. Like, I'm, it's yours. I'm not really, I, I've just gotten comfortable with it. And so we're looking around, all the 15 people. I'm like, who's getting the snake? And everybody said, well, I got to go. I'm heading, you know. It was really, we were that fearful. So I became the one who reached my hand in to get that snake out, put him back in his aquarium. And from that day forward, he became my snake because no one else would touch him. So we had him for, I don't know, several months. Over the summer, we are living in our house, and I was the only person home for the summer. I was going to youth camp, and right before youth camp, going for the week, I thought, i got to feed him before I go, and I'll feed him when I get back. So I get him out of the aquarium. I put him in the cardboard box, put the mouse in. <laughs> he eats. I'm about to head to camp. I go in to reach in and pick him up, and boom, bites me on my finger. That was one of the most scared moments of my life. Like, like, I'll be honest with you, it didn't even really hurt. Um, I was shaking for about 20 minutes later, like, you know, and, and, and I remember getting him out like, um, and, and having to reach in there again and get him in there. I thought, man, this is crazy. And then a, a week later, after I fed him, he struck at me again and missed because of my lightning-fast reflexes, <laughs> probably because I was so scared of getting and I remember, I just took the cardboard box, I didn't even reach in there, just dumped him back in the aquarium, took him back to the pet store where I knew that my roommate had got him, and I said, hey, I'm bringing this to you. And they looked at me and they went, oh, we don't buy back pets. And I said, oh, I'm not selling them. And I just left. <laughs> I kid you not. They got an aquarium, they got a snake. I was like, I'm done. I, I, there's no, I, no part of me. They just, I don't care what you do with it, but you're the experts here. Apparently, I'm not. We don't want to get bit. But you know what's true? Having been bitten by a snake, a, a real-life snake, I would rather be bitten by a real-life snake than have somebody that was a friend or somebody that I cared about or somebody I thought was on my team turn against me. Because the snake thing lasted about 20 minutes until it just became a great story. When you've had friends turn on you, friends hurt you, those relationships may go on, hurt relationships may go on for months or years or forever. You'll get over a snake bite. But we don't want to be hurt by other people. And, and the truth is this. If you don't want to get bit by a real-life snake, there's some things that you can do. Don't go to the rattlesnake roundup. Don't get a pet snake. Don't, don't roommate with somebody who will. Don't live in the country, you know, if you're afraid of snakes. If you're really afraid of snakes, you can do some things. You can put snake repellent around your yard. You can do some things that will almost guarantee that through your life you won't be bit by a snake. Can you do enough to keep from a person that's a snake from hurting you? I mean, you can, you can try. You can. People do. They try to isolate. 
I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to walk with people. I don't want to be in a small group. I push people away. I refuse to get close because if I get close to people, I might be hurt again. And so you can live a life pushing everyone away, going, I'm not going to get close. It's just going to be me. I, I, if I don't get close to you, you can't hurt me. I mean, you can do a, a little bit of a better job of avoiding being hurt, but you're probably still going to get bit at some point. Now, here's the, here's the thing. God created us for relationships. So living that way is no way to, to live. He created you to have heart connections with other people. Part of the human experience that God has created us for is to walk and journey with other people. So you've got to take that risk. But here's, here's the interesting thing. Do you realize that when someone turns on you and someone bites you, that you actually have a more common experience with Jesus than if you didn't? Think about it. If you want to be like Jesus... Hey, I want, to, I want to model my life after him. You realize that the very people that he came to save were the ones who crucified him when he was totally innocent, hadn't done anything wrong. Jesus was turned on by his own people. The, the night before that happened, a moment before it happened, night of my entire life, would you guys pray with me? Would you be friends enough be on the team enough to pray with me. And they said yes. And a couple times they came back and found them asleep. I said 11 of them because one of them wasn't there, right? One of them, one of the guys that he had walked with, he had invested in, one of the 12 disciples was off getting a Roman battalion for 30 pieces of silver selling Jesus out for his crucifixion. And then one of his closest friends, actually the one who wrote the letter that we're going to read today, the one who said, I am never going to betray you. I will never do it. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the night's over. And he said, I won't do it. And did it. I mean, if we're walking with Jesus, Jesus had snakes in his life. And it's just interesting that we're going to read in our Bible, go to 1 Peter. <laughs> we're going to read what Peter says about how to walk through life with people who hurt us. So again, I've already said Peter, if you don't know who he is, he's one of the inner three disciples. At this time when he writes this letter, he is one of the leaders of the early church. He knows Jesus as well, probably as anybody does. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you're more than likely reading Peter's account of the life and teachings of Jesus. So you, can, you know that Peter's walked with him. So this Important passage of Scripture. Now, I want to say this. This passage of Scripture we're about to read is, Peter was not addressing snakes per se. He's going to be talking about being persecuted for your faith. Okay, so I want us to understand that because I don't want us to, to go, hey, we've got this idea, and then we're just going to find some verses to attach to that. It's called proof texting. That's not good preaching. So I want us to understand the context is actually about being persecuted for your faith, which... If you have a snake in your life, it may be somebody who is persecuting you because of your faith. But it may not be as, as well. But as we read this passage about persecution, I want you to understand that the principles that Peter lays down for us on what to do in a world where we're persecuted by our faith, those principles are transcendent and they will help us walk through life and manage betrayal and people who have hurt us. Okay? 
So I want you to make sure we're, kind of, we're, we're clear. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 17, and then we'll come back and walk through them a little bit. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's go back. We're going to journey through. Look at, look at verse 14. Peter says something that should make us sit up and go, what are you talking about? He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. Again, he's talking about persecution. You are living for Jesus. You're on fire. You're obedient. There's nothing that you've done wrong. We can even take the principle and say, when he says, um, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if somebody turns on you that you didn't deserve, same thing. He says, you'll be blessed. I mean, he says, you'll be happy. That make no sense to anybody other than me. Right? Like, like, hey, some of my friends turned on me. <laughs> Best day ever. That makes no sense. We go, what? I don't understand. But we have to understand that, that Peter, through this, this, this letter that he's written, we're not reading chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's talked about identifying with Christ through suffering. And so what Peter would say to us is when that happens, and when somebody attacks you, when somebody betrays you, you actually have now the fertile ground to be more like Jesus. Because you've got an opportunity now to respond to something that you haven't been able to respond to before. You see, you can go back to the passage that David taught us through how to, how to reconcile relationships with people. You can read the passage we read back in week one and talk about loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. You can read about revenge like we did in week two, and, and you can read about blessing the people who hurt you. You know what? You can, you can not only read it, you can memorize those passages of Scripture. You can memorize them where you could just quote them. Bang, 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 bang. You could take some books or go to some classes and get out the Greek, and you could parse words and exegete text, and you could become the intellectual expert on these things. But you know how you grow? By starting to pray for the person who persecutes you. You know how you start to get stretched? When you actually do what you've learned and you go back to work the next day after somebody's betrayed you and you go, man, Scripture says that I'm supposed to eulogio, to eulogy, to, to bless the person who hurts me, and you walk into the office, and you're standing by a group of people, and you look at a person who hurt you the day before, and you start saying incredible things about them to bless them. That, my friends, is when you start to grow. You can know it, and learn it, and memorize it, and parse it, and exegete it, but until you do it, you don't find the stretching that makes you more like Jesus. And so what Peter would say is this, when you're persecuted, when somebody betrays you, now you've got the opportunity to become more like Christ than you've ever had before. Because you can, you can actually do it. And you're going to grow and you're going to stretch. And you've got to look at that and go, thank you, Lord, that I've got this opportunity. Now, let's be honest, we're probably going to be happy after the fact, right? I mean, in the middle of it, where most of us aren't walking like, yeah, I'm so excited about talking great about the guy who burned me yesterday. But it's begun to change me. And I see it. My kids see it. 
Other people around me see it. And so Peter says, hey, when you have this chance to suffer (coughs) for righteousness' sake, be happy because you are growing. And then he gives us a list of things in the end of chapter, I mean, end of verse 14. Uh, He gives us some other like, call them life skills, call them commandments and things. He says, hey, here's what you need to do. He says, he says, don't be afraid. When you've got conflict, you've got persecution, you've got snakes, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because Jesus is on your side. You don't have to be afraid. He says, don't be troubled. That word, good translation for you. Don't get agitated. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus is on the team. You don't have to get frustrated even though it seems like it would because God has everything under control. He says, chill out, relax. He says, this is set apart Christ. Honor Christ in your heart, set him apart as holy. To make something holy means to set it apart. So what Peter says, he says, hey, take Jesus and put him here and everything else here. Here's your world, here's your life, here's everything that's going on. Set apart Christ, take him out of that. Bring him out of the ordinary and put him on a different level and make him holy, honor him in your heart. Don't be afraid. Don't get frustrated. Put Jesus up here and everything else second. Then he says this, also, you need to be ready to give a defense for what you believe. That, that word there, it's a legal term, like a, if you're a lawyer that's giving a defense to a judge, the word is, is apologia. We get our word apologetic from, to prove the faith. So he says, hey, you need to be able to explain why and say, hey, here's why I'm following Christ. And he says, and do it with gentleness and be respectful. Now, you're going to be doing pretty good. If you're at peace with people, if you're not living in fear, if you've made Jesus first and everything else second, if you've gotten to a point in your life where you can explain and give an apologetic or a proof for what God has done in your life and you can do it respectfully and gently, you're going to be an admired person. You're going to be a person of influence. And you're going to be a person of influence for the gospel. I want you to see what comes next in verse 16 because here's where I want to lean into. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, so when somebody snake bites you, so that when somebody turns on you, or those who revile your good behavior, they hate you because of something you've done, they've done something ill to you because you did something good, that they may be put to shame. So here's how I would say it. If you're looking for a way to say it to your kids, we've got to live a life that leads to an unbelievable reputation. We've got to live a life that leads to an unbelievable reputation. If we're doing these things that Peter tells us to do in our life as we follow Christ, we're going to have such the reputation that when someone attacks you, you've got a snake in the den, you've got a snake in your circle, and they betray you, they say something bad about you, you've lived a life that has such an unbelievable reputation that everyone else around goes, uh, I find that hard to believe. Right? Because at the end of the day, we're trying to be like Christ. We want to be like him. We want, to follow, we want people to see us and go, that's the best representation of Jesus I've seen ever. And so if we're living that way and people slander us, accuse us, talk bad about us, every, Peter says everyone else around you is going to shame them because they're going to go, you must have missed something. You apparently don't know her. You must have not spent time with him because what you're saying is so, <coughs> so much of a radical disconnect from what I know of that person it can't be true. Several years ago, um, youth minister, another time, another place, we used to do a camp, and camp was 
about 800 students. Camp Collide about 800 students, but this come from, these come from a bunch of different churches. This was just kids that came with our church. And camps, I love camp. God moves at camp. I've seen God change people's lives at camp. God called me into the ministry at camp. I mean, I love youth camp. But I'll be the first person to say, youth camp can be emotionally manipulative. Like, especially by, like, the last night of youth camp. Like, when I was growing up, it was always Thursday night. Thursday night's when everybody got saved, partly because they'd been up for, you know, however many hours and going, going, and they're emotionally worn out, spiritually exhausted, and the pastor goes, would you like to avoid burning in hell forever? Come forward, like, oh, yes! And they all scream, you know, come down the aisle, and counsel, like, it's the greatest camp ever. And we know that. We don't like that. We don't want that. So what, what we did at camp, when kids made a decision at any time during the week, we didn't have time when they walked down to process everything. Because it's like, you know, camp and you're going to other things. So the next day, we, they all had cards. The next day, every kid that made a decision came back into a room during some Bible study time. They got to skip Bible study to come in. And they talked with one of our pastors, the camp pastor, the worship team. They talked with people that, that, were, that we knew could answer questions, had an apologetic, could help. And we'd sit down and talk with them their story. I'll tell you, I can't tell you the number of kids that had the opportunity to lead to Christ in that, in that conversation because I'd get their card. And, like, and Johnny showed up, and Johnny rededicated his life last night. So since he rededicated his life, he came in and talked about it. And I'd go, Johnny, I see you rededicated your life. Yeah, yeah, Tell me what God's doing. He's telling me, and I'd say, hey, well, tell me about when you dedicated, you rededicated your life. Tell me about when you dedicated your life. And he'd say, oh, I was born a Christian. Well, let's talk about that. Because that's impossible. And, and we'd start talking, and we'd find out that, that God was doing something in his life, and, and we would kind of process through his story and find out that he wasn't rededicating his life. God was doing something fresh for the very first time. And Johnny would sit there and go, you know what? Last night I accepted Christ for the very first time. Great thing. We had the flip side. We had kids. These would have been like some of your kids. They would come down, and they go, I made a profession of, Christ, profession of faith to follow Jesus. And they go, okay, cool. I think this is the seventh time. Um, we've talked about it six other times. Tell me about it. And they'd start talking about it, and we'd go, okay, now, you know, I baptized you when you were seven. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me about that. Did you understand what sin was? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand what sin was. Did you understand who Jesus was? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. we start talking through that. And they, what we would discover, and they would, they would come to this conclusion when I was seven, I, made a, I did make a decision to follow Jesus. God's just doing something new and fresh in my life, and I'm understanding him in a new way. And we would mark out that profession of faith and change it to rededicating their lives. And there were some kids, all those things, but we would process through. Now, after that conversation happened, if they had actually made a profession of faith, we would have them, if they wanted to, call their parents, and if their parents gave them permission, we baptized them out in the lake. Cool experience. One year we baptized 80 kids at camp. So that was conversations with adults clarifying their faith, their decision to follow Christ, and their parents allowing that. Now as an older, wiser youth minister, I would not have ever done that because hardly any of those parents got to see their kids' baptism. It was a terrible idea. Apologize if you were there and missed out your kid, but it wasn't here. But today it was a cool experience at camp because 800 kids or 720 kids gathered around and watched 80 of their peers baptized. We'd have three pastors out in the water, and they'd walk down the boat ramp, and, and we just baptize them three at a time, and send them up, and three at a time, and, and kids are yelling and screaming. It was incredible. You know, I wouldn't do it that way now, but it was 
And I knew when we're baptizing these kids, they have confessed Christ as their Lord. Well, I had a pastor who didn't like what we did. Um, he was, had the gift of evangelism, and, and this is what he, what he told us. He said, when we're telling him about camp, he said, so let me, let me ask you this. what you just said. You talked a kid out of following Christ? I said, well, no, I didn't say that. I talked a kid out of checking a box that said he was following Christ when he'd already made the decision to follow Christ. And this is what he told us. He said, from this point forward, you don't ever call a parent. The kid makes a decision, you baptize him right then and there. I said, yes, sir. Never did it. Um, because I had some theological issues with that. But so we had this conflict, this tension over evangelism and baptism. So fast forward a year or so later, and one of my youth workers comes to me. And he says, hey, I got a question. And he, and he just got done talking to the pastor. And he said, the pastor said that you told him that you don't do evangelism. And he said, what? What was that conversation about? And so I began to kind of unpack the conversation for me. He goes, oh, okay, okay, okay. And here's what he said. That made no sense to me. Now that's a picture, maybe only one I can give you about walking well with the Lord, but that's a picture of this. You see, because of the way I had loved kids previously and, the, and, and what I communicated about wanting to see kids follow the Lord and wanting to kids, see kids baptized, because the Scripture calls that, I had a reputation that when somebody said something slanderous or different, he doesn't believe in evangelism, he doesn't do evangelism, the person immediately went, eh, there's something wrong here. That doesn't make sense because I know him, I know his reputation, I know what he believes, I've seen it, I don't think he would ever say that. And they came to me and said, tell me the story because something crazy is going on. You see that picture? That's what Peter's saying. We live in such a way. Then when somebody speaks bad about us, other people go, that, that can't be. And they might come to you and go, what's going on? Because this is crazy, because this is not you. That's what Peter calls us to do. We live a life that leads to an unbelievable rec uh, reputation. Now, here's the, here's the cool thing. We keep going back to Jesus, right? We said, hey, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Jesus was sold out by his friends. You don't have to flip there. I'll just I'll throw, the, throw the verse up here. Here's how, I believe it's in Mark, how Peter tells a story. Or is it Luke? Let me look and see what it is. Can't remember. What? Yeah, Mark 15. It's Mark 15. So here's how Peter records the, the end of the crucifixion. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He's on the cross. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's a great sermon for another time. From top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman soldier, who was a pagan who stood facing him, he's the guy that's been at the cross the whole time, saw that in this way, he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now some Greek uh, professors and things would look at that and they go, well, we think he might have said he truly this man was a son of the gods. Doesn't matter. The guy was a Roman pagan who worshipped a bunch of gods. The point's the same. From his pagan perspective, he watched Jesus, saw the crucifixion, heard him speak from the cross, and his conclusion, the guy that was, everybody had said was a criminal, that was what the slander had been, he's a criminal, he's a blasphemer, the pagan guy looked at him and went, eh, it doesn't all add up. 
This guy wasn't a criminal. He was the son of God. That's what Peter is calling us to do. So what do we do? We've talked for the last couple weeks. Here's where where my struggle is. I want to give you application. I want to give our students discipleship steps because, guys, I don't want us, and I don't want my own life for us to become full of knowledge and head knowledge. We've got to walk the path. Jesus called us to follow him, which means we take steps forward. And so that's why I keep harping back on, by now, if you haven't identified somebody to be praying for, you need to do that. Is that, that's how we apply what we've learned. Praying for an enemy. You should have blessed them by now, either verbally or done some sort of ministry to them so that you stretch yourself, so that you go, God, I'm gonna, you call me to do this. I'm going to take some steps and follow you in this. It's difficult, but I'm going to trust you. Last week, David challenged us to make some relationships right if we had some. You didn't hear that message, so you can, you can take a free pass on that, I guess. You'll work on these other two. But so here, here's where we come today. What do, what do we do? Well, Peter tells us, Peter gives us our um, application. Verse 16. He says, having a good conscience. We have to have a clear conscience. How do you have a clear conscience? You treasure Jesus so much. You love him so much that you'll do anything to follow him. And when you do anything to follow Jesus, you start aligning your life. It's, here's the word that we would use with kids in elementary school, you'd use with the teenagers, your kids that may be in college or young adults, and you're talking to them in anything. We call it obedience. We don't like that word. I mean, we love it for other people, right? We don't like it for ourselves. That's what it is. Obedience leads to a clear conscience. When, when I treasure Jesus enough, love him enough to do what he says, to take the steps forward the scripture says that I need to take, we start aligning our life like him and our conscience starts to become clear because we don't have any sin that's hidden. We don't have any disobedience that's hanging around us. And we start to look more like Jesus. And when people slander us, attack us, snake us, then people look at us and go, I don't know. Sure looks a lot like Jesus to me. I was a junior in high school. I'll be quick. I want you all to be able to talk. I was a junior in high school. I started following Jesus when I was right before I turned seven. But like many teenagers, when my brain began to change and abstract think and I could understand concepts like grace and forgiveness in a whole new way, I was a sophomore in high school and into my sophomore year, and God really got a hold of me. My junior year, I go in and take AP U.S. History. And AP U.S. History was one of the worst classes I ever had. Not because history, because the teacher wasn't really that, that much of a teacher. Really what we got every day was read 50 pages and fill out this worksheet, all the answers to your worksheet in the 50 pages, and we'll come back to class the next day, and we'll grade the worksheets, and then we will read through the worksheets. And then wash, rinse, repeat every day. It's boring. And here's what else happens. This is what I figured out. Reading 50 to 60 pages a night or whatever, that big, thick textbook was, was hard. And it was, it was history. I'm not a history person. I mean, if you love history, that might have been easy, but most teenagers aren't like, I'd just love to know a little bit more about the Civil War. You know what I mean? So it was a struggle. And here's what made it difficult. When you came into class and you graded your, work, you graded your worksheet yourself, and you looked around, 
And when I say 90% of the class, I'm probably on the low end. And I'm not exaggerating. 90% of the class. You'd go, okay. Question number two, you should have written Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson. Question number two, you should have written 1874. 1874. And then we, we did that, and then we went around. Call out your name. She's got a grade book. John, 100. Lisa, 100. Mitch, 100. Brett, 100. As I started walking with the Lord, again, started really happening that spring in my sophomore year, early in my junior year, about six months in, God just started wrestling with me about my integrity. And I, and I argued with God. I was like, God, everyone else is doing it. And I got my, they're all getting like hundreds and they're going to graduate higher than me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like in the lower end because, and God also, I mean, we don't want to go through 100, 100, 100, 100, Brett, 43, you know, it's 100, 100, and everybody's like looking like, are you an idiot? Do you not know how this works? I mean, I knew, I knew that she knew it was impossible for her not to know. She's looking at hands writing. I rationalized, well, if she knows she doesn't do anything, she must be okay with it. And, and the, here the Holy Spirit said this to me. Well, then if you know she's okay with it, why don't you go up and just ask her if it's okay? Well, because I know what she's got to say. Holy Spirit. Oh. So I had to make a decision to be obedient or not. Guess who ended up with one of the worst grades in U.S. history? Guess who failed the AP U.S. history test? Guess who their senior year, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back, but I want you to see what God does. Guess who, when the rest of the school is taking those like star-type, tax-type, whatever those tests are, those standardized tests, Seniors didn't have to take. We lived in an era of time where you didn't get to go home. You had to stay on campus. And so seniors all went to the auditorium for a senior award show that out of 360 seniors, maybe 40 people were chosen to give a little bitty plaque. Guess who was given most likely to enter the clergy? Me. And what God did that day was drill something into my life in my heart, and what it was is this. You being an influence on your peers, that your friends looked around and didn't even have to pick, it wasn't like they had to get an award for everybody, but you lived, you had a reputation, lived a life in such a way that they picked you out of the crowd and tied you in the best way that they could to me. Because they didn't say, I mean, I guess clergy was the best word you can come up with when you're lost. Um, was way more valuable to the kingdom than your UP, U, AP U.S. history test or your grade. And then here's, here's the spoiler alert. I got into college and still got a job even though I failed U.S. history. I didn't fail U.S. history, I passed it, I failed the test. God still took care of things because he's more concerned about our integrity, he's more concerned about our reputation because our reputation reflects him. So we live a life in such a way that it leads and unbelievable. People go, you got to be kidding me. Reputation. Let me close with one more passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about conscience. And I want to read this to you. 
the writer of Hebrews is helping Jewish people understand who Jesus is. So there's a lot of Jewish law and Jewish experience in it, particularly in this passage about sacrifices. The Jews sacrificed animals for the forgiveness of sin. He says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now here it is, and again, I'm not unpacking all of this. I'll get to the point, though. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. Jesus walked into his place in heaven. Not the tabernacle built by hands. He walked in his place, and it wasn't the, the, the goat. It wasn't the animal whose blood was shed for your forgiveness of sins. It was Jesus Christ's blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, now get this, who through the eternal Spirit, Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now I know that's some heavy stuff. And I know on Wednesday night, when we read this with teenagers, it's going to be like deer in the headlights. And we're not going to have time to go through Hebrews 9 and walk through all this. But what I want you to see is this, this last line. That through the, through the eternal Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he purifies our conscience from dead works. What we said, our application was to, to live with a clear conscience. And here's what I need you to understand. Because in a room this big, I know most people in this room are probably following Jesus or trying. And when we talk about having a clear conscience, what we're saying is we are living our life following Jesus, being obedient to him so that there's not sin in our life. But what I need you to understand is if you've walked in this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there's never been a time in your life where you said, hey, I realize that I have sin in my life. I've been trying to do life as me as the boss, me being the king or the queen, me being on the throne. The only way that your conscience becomes clear, pure, is through accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for your behalf. Because that's when sin is erased and eradicated. Now you can try to have a clear conscience without Jesus. You can try and do things that make you feel better about the decisions you've done or the sin that you've done in the past. But you know what that's called? Religion. It's me trying to work my way to God. It's me trying to make penance or atonement for something that's in my past, for my sin, my faults, my mistakes. And the scripture is clear. The Bible is not about religion. It's about a relationship. A relationship with Jesus Christ who offered himself without blemish, sinless to God on your behalf so that your conscience and your history could become pure and clear. So it starts. Your, your application, if you're a believer, is to have a clear conscience. You need to figure out what is it that you need to do to follow Christ better today. And that may be, okay, my application is I'm going to keep praying for this person. Brett said the series, but I'm going to keep after it. I still haven't blessed the person. I still haven't ministered. I've got to step out, follow Jesus. God, I've got to have an intentional way to start trying to love this person well. There's a sin in your life that when people would come and say, such and such happened to him, or she did this, if, if, if people might go, oh yeah, I could see that, and, and God's identified that, hey, you've got some issues, 
Your reputation is, is not unbelievable. Your reputation, your conscience is not clear. There might be something, but you need maybe put a 30-day plan with some other people in your small group, somebody close to you, and go, hey, here's the God's identifying my life I need to walk towards to become obedient so my conscience will be clear with him. I, I don't know what it is. Keep praying for that person. Keep looking to bless them. Figure out what it is that you need. The Holy Spirit will answer. I can't answer for you. That you need to do to walk with Jesus in such a way that you have a clear conscience. But before you do any of that, the most important application you could have is to give your life to Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is I'm going to pray for us. And if you came in today and go, hey, I, I just don't even know. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you go, I've been in church all my life. I, I don't know really where I stand with Jesus. Let's talk about that. Is there any harm in talking about it? I, I promise you this. If you want to have a conversation about where you stand with Jesus, we won't have it on the stage with a microphone, me and you, or everybody else here. We'll find a time to do coffee. We'll find a time to talk so that you can settle that. Here's the biggest thing that happens for parents. If I walk down that journey and confess Christ as my Savior for the first time at 50 years old, what are my kids going to think? I'm going to bring them to church. My kids think I'm following Jesus. What are my, what are my kids going to think? Tell you what your kids are going to think. Tell you what your coworkers are going to think. I'll tell you what your people in your small group are going to think. Praise God they didn't keep playing the game. Thank you, Jesus, that my mom, my friend, my coworker will be in eternity with me forever. Thank you, Jesus, that they didn't listen to the enemy and let pride and fear and shame keep them from you. That's what they're going to think. And we'll high five each other and head to the baptistry. You won't even have to call your parents for permission. I won't make you do it. Let's pray.